Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings once again. Let me start off today's show by commenting on the title for this show, Creation, Myth, or Miracle. I got a very good comment from a fellow creationist not long ago who pointed out that this sounds like a false dichotomy. In other words, those aren't the only two choices. So it's a very good question. Is it true that creation must either be a myth, the biblical creation story never happened, or it has to be a miracle? Well, that depends upon how you define the word miracle. And a couple of times on previous shows, I've done so by referring to a miracle as an instance in which something happens which must be caused outside of the currently operating laws, as they're called, of the physical universe. So in other words, if given the way the universe operates right now, the things that we can measure in the lab and what we refer to as the laws of nature, if an event is impossible under those laws and yet it actually occurred, that's what I mean by a miracle. And given that definition, the Big Bang is a miracle. The origin of life from non-life is a miracle. Macroevolution's addition of the necessary information into the genome is a miracle. And so the subtle dichotomy which I meant to imply, and which obviously I did not communicate very well, is either creation is a myth, meaning we don't exist, there is nothing, or it's a miracle. So if you are convinced that you actually exist and there really is a physical universe, then the question becomes, what miracle created everything we see? And so if you follow that line of thought, it becomes a very rational thing to do to examine the world, determine what characteristics might be required by the source of the miracle of creation, and then seek knowledge as to whom that creator is. In today's show, we're going to talk about what I think is a very interesting story, and it's a great example of the fact that what we may think is true and what everybody thinks is simply common knowledge may, in fact, be completely wrong or very twisted. Back on our September 17th broadcast, we talked about the mythical myth of the day being the flat earth myth and the commonly held but false belief that throughout the Middle Ages, all the church people believed the earth was flat. So if you missed that broadcast and have an interest in that topic or think I'm completely nuts, go listen to the September 17th podcast and see what you think. Look up the references for yourself. The topic for today's show is Galileo. We all know, or think we know, that what really happened was a bunch of ignorant, Bible-believing church people persecuted the objective, truth-seeking scientist Galileo, right? I mean, here's a very typical example of how this is presented on a website. First, you quote Psalm 104, verse 5, The earth is firmly fixed, it shall not be moved. Then you say, this Bible verse shackled the minds of men for thousands of years and held back the advance of science. 
It was this verse that was used as evidence against Galileo who argued for the theory of Copernicus, that the earth was not immovable but rotates around the sun. It was for teaching this that he was called to Rome in 1633 and tried for the crime of heresy. That's a pretty accurate rendition of the common picture as to what we think happened. Well, there's a phrase that you probably have heard that the devil's in the details. Well, I think often the truth is in the details. And so we need to dig a little bit and find out what some of these details are. Today we're discussing what is supposed to be the classic example of science versus ignorant religion, the persecution of Galileo and his trial for heresy. Well, what really happened out there? I'm going to share with you information from several different articles about this from creation.com, and those articles also document and footnote their sources of information, which are very often from secular historians. So just know I'm not just making this up. Now for the background. Over two millennia ago, Aristotle, who lived from 384 to 322 BC, taught that the earth was the center of a perfect universe in which the movements of the stars were circular and never-ending. And they were circular because they had to be perfect, you understand. A few hundred years later, Ptolemy expanded these ideas into what became known as the Ptolemaic system. And that basic view of the universe held sway over the scientific community for several hundred years. Then, in the 16th century, Copernicus, from 1473 to 1543 was his lifespan, postulated a better explanation that the earth and planets revolved around the sun. And then, in the 17th century, Galileo, who lived from 1564 to 1642, with his telescope, was able to carry out repeatable observations which refuted Aristotle and Ptolemy and supported Copernicus. For example, he observed that the sun had spots which moved across its surface, showing the sun was not perfect, and it itself rotated. He observed the phases of Venus, showing that Venus must orbit the sun. And he discovered four moons that revolve around Jupiter, not the Earth, showing that the Earth was not the center of everything. The universe of Plato, Aristotle, and Ptolemy had crystalline, transparent spheres that had objects embedded within them, such as stars and planets. And in order to try to make this model match growing observations, they had to keep adding more and more spheres and make it more and more complicated. And one reference indicated they were forced to introduce at least 55 of these spheres. Well, along comes Galileo, and in 1618, he observed three comets pass effortlessly through Ptolemy's crystalline spheres, in which the planets and stars supposedly moved around the Earth, showing that these spheres must be imaginary. And you need to know that the Copernican system, which was sun-centered, called heliocentric, was opposed to the views of the astronomer-philosophers of the day who earned their livelihood by teaching Aristotle and Ptolemy, and so were biased against change. They therefore either ignored, ridiculed, destroyed, or hostily opposed Galileo's writings. Many church leaders allowed themselves to be persuaded by the Aristotelians at the universities that the geocentric or earth-centered system was taught in Scripture, 
and that Galileo was contradicting the Bible. Note that the real problem that occurred here was theologians allowing the science of their day to cause them to reinterpret scripture in a particular way that it never really taught. And then when science moved along and corrected its previously erroneously held belief, the theologians get caught with a problem. Did the Bible really say what they taught it said or didn't it? Does the new science contradict scripture or not? This problem is being repeated right now by the large percentage of the Christian church, which is accepting the current secular science teachings about the Big Bang and reading that into the Bible where it never says it at all. And given the problems that the Big Bang has scientifically, that theory will be disposed at some point and will have this same conundrum again, with those theologians having an issue with the new science. But that's not the focus of today's show. Today we're taking a look at some of the actual historical details of the Galileo affair, and from one in-depth article we read the following. The 17th century controversy between Galileo and the Vatican is examined. Fifteen theses are advanced with supporting evidence to show that the Galileo affair cannot serve as an argument for any position on the relation of religion and science. Contrary to legend, both Galileo and the Copernican system were well regarded by church officials. Galileo was the victim of his own arrogance, the envy of his colleagues, and the politics of Pope Urban VIII. He was not accused of criticizing the Bible, but disobeying a papal decree. In 1959, Arthur Kostler published a book, The Sleepwalkers, A History of Man's Changing Vision of the Universe, An Account of Changing Scientific Paradigms, in which he said, Few episodes in history have given rise to a literature as voluminous as the trial of Galileo. And he also wrote, I believe the idea that Galileo's trial was a kind of Greek tragedy, a showdown between blind faith and enlightened reason, to be naively erroneous. Well, we certainly don't have time to look at all 15 of the theses advanced regarding this historical event, so we're going to look at a few of them. The first one is, the Copernican system was well regarded by church officials. An open defense of the Copernican system was, in principle, without danger. The Ptolemaic system had been denied by many high officials and Jesuit astronomers even before Galileo was born. As the example of the imperial court astronomer, Johannes Kepler, proves, many of them followed the Copernican system. The Jesuits themselves were more Copernican than Galileo was. It is now well recognized that the reason why Chinese astronomy advanced more rapidly than European astronomy was simply because Jesuit missionaries communicated to them their Copernican views. And while Martin Luther called Copernicus a fool and said that his book would turn the whole art of astronomy upside down, the book had not been fought by the Vatican. It was seen as a mathematical hypothesis, but had already been used as an aid in astronomical calculations for a long time. Furthermore, the book by Copernicus was not outlawed by the Vatican until 1616 to 1620 and was readmitted to the public after just some minor changes. Thesis 2 Galileo was well regarded by the church. Until the trial against him, Galileo stood in high esteem among the Holy See. 
the Jesuits, and especially the popes of his lifetime, his teachings were celebrated. Galileo's visit to Rome in 1611, after he had published his Messenger from the Stars, was a triumph. Pope Paul V welcomed him in friendly audience, and the Jesuit Roman College honored him with various ceremonies, which lasted a whole day. Jean-Pierre Maury writes about this visit, quote, Now Galileo's discoveries have been acknowledged by the greatest astronomical and religious authorities of his time. Pope Paul V received him in private audience and showed him so much reverence that he did not allow him to kneel down in front of him as was usual. Some weeks later, the whole Collegio Romano gathered in the presence of Galileo officially to celebrate his discoveries. Interestingly, Galileo's first written statement in favor of the Copernican system, his Letters on Sunspots, was met with much approval and no critical voice was heard. Among the cardinals who congratulated Galileo was Cardinal Barberini, who later became Pope Urban VIII and would sentence Galileo in 1633. In 1615, an accusation against Galileo was filed but denied by the Court of Inquisition. From 1615 till 1632, Galileo enjoyed the friendship of many cardinals and the different popes. Well, this certainly isn't what I thought happened until I had read some more of the details. Is it what you thought happened? So if the Vatican didn't have a problem with Galileo so far, what in the world happened? Thesis number three. Envy, not religion, was the trigger. The battle against Galileo was not started by Catholic officials, but by Galileo's colleagues and scientists who were afraid of losing their position and influence. The representatives of the church were much more open to the Copernican system than were the scientists and Galileo's colleagues. Galileo avoided and delayed an open confession in favor of the Copernican system in fear of his immediate and other colleagues, not in fear of any part of the church. This was already true of Copernicus himself. Gerard Proust summarizes the situation, quote, Not in fear of those above him in the church, as is often wrongly stated, but as Copernicus himself said, he was afraid to be laughed at and to be hissed off the stage by the university professor, so he refused to publish his work for more than 38 years. Only after several church officials, especially Pope Clemens VII, had requested it, did Copernicus finally decide to publish his work. Only a few scientists living in Galileo's time confessed publicly that they followed Copernicus. Some did so secretly, but most denied the Copernican system. Thus, while poets were celebrating Galileo's discoveries, which had become the talk of the world, the scholars in his own country were, with a few exceptions, hostile or skeptical. The first, and for some time the only, scholarly voice raised in public defense of Galileo was Johannes Kepler's. Besides this, the church represented not only the interests of the theologians, but also the interests of those scientists who were part of the orders of the church. The order of the Jesuits, who were behind the trial against Galileo, included the leading scientists of that day. So let's be very clear, the opposition to Galileo and Copernican came from the scientists of the day who clung to the older scientific belief which had been in place for hundreds of years, and many of these scientists were part of the Catholic Church. On to thesis number four. Genius plus arrogance minus humility equals deadly enemies. 
Galileo was a very obstinate, overly sensitive, and aggressive scientist who created many deadly enemies by his harsh polemics even among those who no longer followed the Ptolemaic worldview. Galileo had already earned the nickname the Wrangler during his student days. Kostler shows repeatedly that this personal aspect of many of Galileo's battles made it impossible for other scientists to work with him. Kostler wrote, Galileo had a rare gift of provoking enmity, not the affection alternating with rage which Tycho aroused, but the cold, unrelenting hostility which genius plus arrogance minus humility creates among mediocrities. Without the personal background, the controversy which followed the publication of Galileo's book would remain incomprehensible. Kostler also adds more generally, His method was to make a laughingstock of his opponent, in which he invariably succeeded, whether he happened to be in the right or in the wrong. It was an excellent method to score a moment's triumph and make a lifelong enemy. Another historian states it similarly, Galileo was not afraid of personal attacks and mockery against others, but this was the easiest way to create enemies. Here's a specific example of how Galileo responded to an anti-Ptolemaic writing of the leading Jesuit astronomer Horatio Grassi. When Galileo read the treatise, he had an outburst of fury. He covered its margins with exclamations like, quote, piece of asininity, elephantine, buffoon, evil poltron, and ungrateful villain. The ingratitude consisted in the fact that the treatise did not mention Galileo's name, whose only contribution to the theory of comets had been a casual endorsement of Tycho's views in the letters on sunspots. There are many more historical examples of how Galileo alienated his contemporaries by ridiculing them and his enormous ego. We simply don't have time to discuss them. We're discussing the real history of Galileo versus the Vatican Church. Given the short time remaining, let's jump to Thesis 8. Galileo felt no need for proof. He always acted as if he had all the proofs, but did not and could not present them, as he said, because no one else was intelligent enough to understand them. Kostler writes, He employs his usual tactics of refuting his opponent's thesis without proving his own. And now we're getting to the heart of the scientific matter. Galileo did not work empirically. He regarded the Copernican system as an axiom and didn't feel the need for any proofs. His conflict with the Catholic Church was because he presented it as proven, and when he was challenged to provide the proofs, he could not do so, so he ridiculed the Pope. Something you need to understand is Galileo was wrong scientifically. Given his arrogance, he ignored the work of Kepler. Kepler is the one who discovered the orbits are not circular, but elliptical. Galileo clung to circular orbits, and thus his model was actually flawed. In fact, the most famous proof he ever presented for his own model related to the tides, and his proof is fallacious. So Galileo got into trouble because the officials in the church pressured him to provide proofs. When the cardinal responsible for the court of Inquisition asked Galileo in a friendly way for his proofs so that he could accept his theory as proven theory and asked him otherwise to present his Copernican theory as hypothesis only, Galileo answered in a harsh letter that he was not willing to present his evidences because no one could really understand them. Kostler comments on this. 
How can he refuse to produce proof and at the same time demand that the matter be treated as if proven? The solution to the dilemma was to pretend that he had the proof, but to refuse to produce it on the grounds that his opponents were too stupid anyway to understand. Galileo reacted in a similar way after the Pope himself asked for proofs. Any wonder he got in trouble? Virtually all researchers agree that Galileo had no physical proof for his theory. Some parts of his theory could not be proven at all because they were wrong, as we just mentioned. And one must not forget that the Copernican hypothesis itself was never denied by the Inquisition, but only that it was not allowed to be presented as a scientifically proven theory or as a truth. In fact, however, there never had been any question of condemning the Copernican system as a working hypothesis. The Copernican system was just an officially tolerated working hypothesis awaiting proof. As Galileo came more and more under pressure, he finally invented a, quote, secret weapon, the totally erroneous theory that the tides were caused by the turning of the earth. This easily disproved theory was said to be the absolute secure proof of the Copernican system. The whole idea was in such glaring contradiction to fact and so absurd as a mechanical theory, the field of Galileo's own immortal achievements, that its conception can only be explained in psychological terms. William A. Wallace used recently discovered manuscripts to show that Galileo knew exactly that the final proof for the Copernican system was lacking and that he was covering this under his rhetoric. Thesis 9. Ptolemy was no longer an issue. In Galileo's time, science did not have to decide between Ptolemy and Copernicus. Ptolemy's view that all planets and the sun orbited the earth was no longer a real option. Rather, it is important that the choice now lay between Copernicus and Brahe, that's Tycho Brahe, because everybody believed that other planets orbited the sun. The question was whether or not the earth was moving itself or staying in the center of the universe. Nearly no expert believed in Ptolemaic astronomy any longer. The conflict was between Tycho Brahe and Copernicus. Tycho Brahe, predecessor of Kepler as German imperial court astronomer, held to the central position of the Earth while at the same time integrating the observation of the other planets moving around the Sun. Galileo argued against Ptolemy, did not even address the Tychonian system with the Earth still at the center of the universe. Thesis 10, Galileo defended outdated hypotheses. So let's try to sum this up since we have very little time left. First, Galileo's theory was factually wrong because he ignored the need for elliptical orbits from the work of Kepler. Secondly, he refused a papal decree. He was not accused of contradicting scripture. Third, Galileo falsely claimed to have proofs, but then wouldn't present them because he said everybody else was too stupid to understand them. Fourth, Jesuit scientists defended the Copernican system more accurately than did Galileo. Galileo insisted his theory be treated as proven, even though it was factually wrong and he could not prove it, and he apparently knew so. That's where his ego came into play in all this. And regarding the conflict between the two systems, the real conflict was whether or not the earth was considered as moving or not not whether the sun was the center of the solar system. And finally, many anti-theists praise Galileo for removing man from the center of the universe, supposedly curing man's arrogance. Typical is physicist Lawrence Krauss, quote, Galileo removed us from the center of the universe. 
how much greater a fall could we have? However, this shows complete ignorance of the historical context. The old geocentric view with the earth at center was not at all edifying. For much of church history, the center was regarded as the lowest place to be. At the lowest was Hades at Earth's center, and the abode of man on Earth's surface was the next worse, quite corrupted compared to heavenly perfections. The further away from the center, the closer to heaven you were thought to be. So moving the Earth away from the center was, in the context of the Middle Ages, actually exalting it, the exact opposite of what is usually portrayed. And while not defending the Inquisition at all, the Galileo affair does not show the church ignorantly and stupidly resisting the advances of science. The biblical worldview was at the forefront of the development of modern science and welcomes true advances within science. There is nothing to fear whatsoever from that. See creationmythormiracle.com. 